Well, this morning we come to our final uh, sermon or final week in this Means of Grace series. I hope that you have been taught, um, that you have been motivated um, to pursue the means of grace, the ways that God works um, in your own development as a believer. When children are young, they seem to all have a universal problem. Begins, you know, as they become toddlers, maybe a little bit before that. They won't eat the food that you put before them, especially if it is the color green. But parents know that their children need to develop a palate for healthy foods if they are going to become healthy children. And so we try to motivate them. We do negative motivation. We say, if you don't finish everything that's on your plate, you won't have dessert. But we also use positive motivation with them. What parent here hasn't said, you need to eat your vegetables so that you can grow up to be big and strong. A previous generation had some help in this endeavor of getting their kids to eat vegetables through the media, uh, believe it or not, through specifically a cartoon called Popeye the Sailor Man. Almost all of you can quote at least the chorus of his song. Now, you should go and re-look at the verses. They may be less familiar. But he says, I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. Popeye the Sailor Man. I'm strong to the finish because I eats me spinach. I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. And remember what happened to Popeye after he would squeeze open a can of spinach and let it drain down his throat. You would see his muscles popping out all over his body from head to toe and then back out into his forearms. He'd be able to lift tons of steel to defeat any of the enemies um, that were in front of him. Brutus being the main one and was always able to get his sweetheart olive oil out of whatever pickle she might find herself in. The message was clear. Eat your vegetables and you'll grow up to be big and strong. My message this morning is similar. Do you want to grow up to be big and strong in the Lord spiritually? Then eat the bread and drink the cup. Come to the table of the Lord's Supper and you will be nourished. Our statement of faith says it this way, the Lord Jesus mandated two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which visibly and tangibly express the gospel. And though they are not the means of salvation, when celebrated in genuine faith, these ordinances confirm and nourish the believer. In the book Evangelical Convictions, which is a commentary on our statement of faith, a resource that I think every family in this church should have on their shelf, um, it is clear um, in that that 
the Lord's Supper is not a means of salvation, but it says explicitly it is a means of grace, which we've been talking about this, uh, this month. In other words, it's one of the ways that God works to change His people into the image of Christ. It is a way that we grow spiritually, that we are edified as believers. The elements in and of themselves don't do the work like spinach might um, in in your body. But when received through faith, the Lord uses them. The Holy Spirit goes to work on our hearts, to work in our lives. My main goal for this morning is to show you how the Lord's Supper works to sanctify you. I want to answer the question, how does the Lord's Supper nourish believers? How does it strengthen us? How does it help us to grow? But before I can answer this main question, we first have to think through what the Lord's Supper actually is. And so I'm going to spend most of my time this morning um, with what the Lord's Supper is, thinking through specifically four things that are expressed in the Lord's Supper, four things that are communicated to us in the Lord's Supper before I turn to my main goal, which is to say, how does this nourish us? And I will list three ways that it nourishes us. So let's begin with what the Lord's Supper is. To keep with our food analogy, what spiritual nutrients are found within the Lord's Supper? Remember what our statement of faith says. The Lord's Supper visibly and tangibly expresses the gospel. So we want to consider four ways that the Lord's Supper expresses the gospel. The first is the Lord's Supper is a commemoration of Christ's death. A commemoration of Christ's death. In Luke chapter 22, we see Luke's version of the institution of the Lord's Supper. You can find it in the other Gospels as well, but in Luke 22, we read this. As Jesus sets down to the table with His disciples, He says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. These words give the backdrop for the Lord's Supper. It was informed by the Passover, which was established in Exodus 11 to 13. So if we're going to understand the meaning of the Lord's Supper, we need to be reminded of the significance of the Passover in Exodus 11 to 13. In Exodus 11 to 13, there are two major events that are going on. There is the tenth and final plague on Egypt. So there's judgment. But then there's also the exodus of Israel out of Egypt, the salvation for God's people. But it's really interesting if you go and read through these chapters that are about the tenth plague and the Exodus, that there are these two major interruptions to the narrative, both that have to do with the institution 
of the Passover meal that would happen perpetually following the actual exodus. So what you have is redemption from Egypt, but then you also have a call to remember that redemption through observing the Passover meal. The tenth plague was God's final judgment on Egypt. The death of the firstborn in all of the land of Egypt, both man and beast alike. It was God's wrath that was poured out on sin. But God provided a way for His people to be saved, to be protected from His wrath in that final plague. If they would place the blood of the Lamb on the doorposts of their house, when the angel of death passed through Egypt, the angel of death would pass over those houses on which the blood was placed. God would save His people through the blood of a substitute. A substitutionary sacrifice. And that's what happened. God brought judgment on the Egyptians, but He passed over the Israelites. He made, as is emphasized in Exodus 11-13 to in a number of ways, a distinction. He made a distinction between those who were His people and those who were not His people. That's the redemption part of Exodus 11-13. to But as I've mentioned, the redemption part is only part of these chapters. The other part is remembering the redemption. And so God established this Passover meal as a perpetual ordinance in Israel to remember their redemption. As they observed the Passover year after year, they would recall and rejoice in rescue. Rescue from God's wrath. And just as God made a distinction between the Egyptians and Israel in the tenth plague, the Passover meal itself was also intent on making a distinction. Exodus 12, verses 44 to 48 says this, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And if a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. And get this. He shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. This was only for the people of God who had been marked off as the people of God. But it's interesting. It wasn't only for the people who were originally brought out of Egypt. Future generations would observe this meal as well as though they had been brought out of Egypt. The other thing that's interesting is it wasn't only for ethnic Israel. It's interesting. He says, no foreigner shall eat of it. But if they would, 
they need to first be circumcised. In other words, if they come into the covenant community, then they can partake of the blessings of this covenant community. The parallels between the Passover and the Lord's Supper are hopefully clear to you already, but let me say a few words. The Last Supper was a Passover meal for the church to observe. It was a Passover meal that did not point back to the Exodus so much as it pointed forward to the cross. In 1 Corinthians 5-7, Paul says this, Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed for us. Jesus observed the Last Supper before He suffered on the cross, but then He established the lasting ordinance of the Lord's Supper to be observed after He suffered on the cross. It's a way to remember the redemption that Christ accomplished for us where He gave His life as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. Through His sins, we have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And we are rescued from the wrath of God as Israel was before, but in a fuller way. This meal was interestingly and in a parallel way not only for Jesus' first disciples that were gathered with Him here in the upper room, but for all future disciples. For all who have been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ through faith in Him and who have come in to the covenant community of God. The new covenant community. In the old covenant, God made a way for sinful Israel to live in relationship with Him through animal sacrifices. But these sacrifices were temporary and they could not take away um, the sins of His people as the book of Hebrews says. But Christ offered a once-for-all sacrifice for sin. Through His blood, He brings about the new covenant. So Jesus says in Luke 22, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So the Lord's Supper is a sign of the new covenant. I think Jordan used this illustration, similar one last week with baptism. But it's like a wedding ring. The ring on your finger doesn't make the marriage. The vows do. But the ring points to the vows. In the same way, the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup, receiving them, they don't make the new covenant. The new covenant was established in Christ's blood, which is represented in the bread and the cup. When we take the Lord's Supper, we remember the covenant that Christ made with us. Just like the Israelites did in the Passover. It's a way to remember. To remember what Christ did for us on the cross. To commemorate His death. Second, it expresses our communion with Christ's life. 
So a commemoration of His death and a communion with His life. Or, as Jordan talked about last week, it expresses our union with Christ. 1 Corinthians 10.16 says this, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The Greek word here translated as participation is koinonia, which means fellowship. And in a way that I still do not totally understand. Paul says that when we receive the bread and the cup, we are experiencing fellowship in Christ's body and in Christ's blood. Participating in His body and His blood. We have fellowship with Him. Paul's goal in 1 Corinthians 10, you know, these passages on the Lord's Supper in Paul, they have a context. He's talking about the Lord's Supper as it relates to other issues within the church. And the issue that he's dealing with in 1 Corinthians 10 is idolatry. His main goal is to call the Corinthians to flee from idolatry. They were participating in idolatrous meals, eating food offered to idols. And Paul says, if you are in Christ, if you have participation in His body and His blood, you can't participate in idolatry. When you take the Lord's Supper, you are sharing in the benefits of Christ's body and His blood. You are unified with Him. It doesn't make sense that you would be seeking the benefits of serving idols. We are in Christ. That's who we are. We belong to Him. And therefore, we owe Him our complete allegiance. If we have fellowship with Christ, we should not have fellowship with other idols. But it's not only that. We also have fellowship with one another in the church. Participating in Christ's body means that we are united as a people in Christ's body. There is something that is real that we sometimes don't always experience. And that reality is if we are in Christ, we are one. We are unified. Paul drives this home in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 to 34, which is the main text that we look at most communion Sundays. Let me just give a little bit of the background of this passage. One of the many issues facing the church at Corinth was division in the body. And this division was on display whenever the Corinthian church met for worship and to observe the Lord's Supper. The church was likely meeting in somebody's home, probably a wealthy person's home that had a home large enough for the church to meet in. And because they met in homes, it was common for the people to spend a little time eating before the actual church service began. 
Many scholars believe that the well-to-do members of the church had more flexibility with their schedule, so they would show up early um, to the house where they were going to worship. They were going on without the other people, eating and drinking, not waiting for the working class, class people to show up. In fact, they were eating and drinking so much that some of them were wasted by time the church service started. By time the poor people arrived, there wasn't any room for them in the main dining area, so maybe they had to set out in the atrium. So it's likely that there was a physical division among the classes based off of where they sat, but there was also a social division among the classes. Let me read some of these verses to you from 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 to 18. Paul says, When you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Then in verses 20 to 22, he says, When you come together, It is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Notice what he says at the very beginning. He says it would be better if they didn't even get together for church. He says that meal you're eating, that's not actually the Lord's Supper that you're eating. Those are some pretty sharp words. Why is he being so harsh? Well, it has to do with what the Lord's Supper is, which is what we're talking about right now. In verse 26, he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Taking the Lord's Supper announces the Gospel, that Christ's body was broken for us, that His blood was shed for us. But... Not only that, it also points to the implications of the gospel. Because of what Christ has done, we are in Christ, and therefore we are one. It's a relational reality. So if we have divisions among us on Sunday morning while we're taking the Lord's Supper, we are saying one thing with our lives and another thing by taking communion. It's as if we are communicating a false gospel. I think that's why Paul's so hot. That's when Paul gets hot, isn't it? He says they're taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Verse 27. This is so serious that some of the people in the church had fallen sick and some had even died. That's 
how serious it is to wrongly represent the Gospel of Jesus Christ. If we are in Christ, we have fellowship with one another. The Lord's Supper points to that. So we can't live in such a way as though we're pointing at something else. So to deal with the problem, Paul tells the church to examine themselves before they take the Lord's Supper. That's verse 28. In verse 29, I believe he's telling us what this means. It means discerning the body. When we take the Lord's Supper, we should not only remember Christ's death, we should not only remember our union with Christ, we should also remember our fellowship with other believers because that is what it is communicating. That's the third way the Lord's Supper expresses the Gospel. Finally, it is a foretaste of Christ's coming. In 1 Corinthians 11.26, Paul says, For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He returns. Or in Matthew 26, in the account of the Last Supper there, Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I think both of these passages are showing us that the Lord's Supper not only points to the past of what Christ has done, to the present of what is true of us as believers and as a church, but it also is pointing forward to what will be true when Christ returns. It is a foretaste of a future feast. In Revelation 19, we see that when Christ returns, He will host the great marriage supper of the Lamb. And on that day, God's people from all tribes, tongues, and nations will gather to rejoice at the rescue that they have that they have received through Christ's work on the cross. Isaiah 25, I believe, speaks of this final feast. I want to read a few of the verses from that just to give you a little bit of the tone of how remarkable that final feast will be. Isaiah 25, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of His people will be taken away from all of the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. And what a day of rejoicing it will be. When we take the Lord's Supper, we are looking back. We are 
not only looking back, however, we are also looking at the present of who we are because of what Christ has done, but we also look forward to His coming. Now, there is obviously so much more that could be said about the Lord's Supper, so much more that could be said about these texts. One of the painful things in working on this sermon is I've actually preached from all of the main text I've already mentioned. So I was very aware of all that I was leaving out. Um, But you are welcome if you would like to know more to go back and listen or read those sermons. My main goal for this morning was simply to say enough to build a foundation for my main goal to show how the Lord's Supper nourishes believers, how it helps us to grow big and strong in the Lord. And to that purpose, I want to turn now. I've quoted two passages already from 1 Corinthians. The Corinthian church, I believe, was full of true believers. Paul makes that clear from the very get-go, that it was full of very immature believers. One of the main issues that they were dealing with, as I've mentioned, was unity in the body. And this comes up again in chapters 12 to 14, where there is division over the spiritual gifts that have been given to the church. And in the middle of chapters 12 to 14, we are given the great love chapter, chapter 13. And at the end of that chapter, Paul gives a summary statement that I think is driving at a lot of what he wants for the church at Corinth. He says, so now faith, hope, and love abide. Our faith, hope, and love remain. But the greatest of these is love. I could mention a number of ways that the Lord's Supper nourishes us to grow up big and strong in the Lord, but I simply want to mention three ways that it can do that. I want to show how taking the Lord's Supper helps us to grow in faith, in hope, and in love. First, faith. Taking the Lord's Supper strengthens our faith. When we remember Christ's death, we are remembering the Gospel. It strengthens our faith in the Gospel. It reminds us of what Christ has done for us in the past. But it also, as Bobby Jameson says in his book on the Lord's Supper, brings the past into the present. Think of some of the present truths um, that the Lord's Supper point to. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins. We who were rebels to God have been reconciled to God. We have been given new hearts. We are a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. In the Lord's Supper, we are reminded of these truths. We are given a visible and tangible way to embrace these truths by faith. So when we receive the Lord's Supper in genuine faith, we are strengthened 
in our faith. The Lord's Supper nourishes us. It helps us to grow big and strong. Second, hope. Taking the Lord's Supper grounds us in hope. The Lord has, in a way, set a table before us in the presence of our enemies. As we live in this world and we battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, we are reminded when we come to the table of what we read in Isaiah 25, of what we read in Revelation 19, that one day all of our strivings will be ending. Christ will be victorious over all finally and forever. This hope for the future helps us to persevere in the present. Third, love. Taking the Lord's Supper renews our love for Christ and for the church. When we remember that Christ first loved us, which is what we remember when we come to the Lord's Supper it should motivate us to love Him and to love others specifically within the body of Christ. How do we love Christ? One of the things 1 John emphasizes, some of you are studying 1 John right now in um, Sunday morning classes, is if we love Him, we will obey Him. If we love Him, we will obey Him. The Lord's Supper reminds us as we saw in 1 Corinthians 10, that we have communion with Christ. Therefore, we should flee from idolatry. We should have no longings for other gods, but we should be satisfied in all that we have in Christ. And that satisfaction will be proved through obedience to what He has called us to do. The other way that we love Christ we read about this in 1 John as well, is through loving one another in the church. You can't say that you have eternal life, that you love God if you don't, as 1 John says, love the brothers. Love our brothers and sisters in the church. When we come to the Lord's Supper, we are reminded that we are one in Christ and that should strengthen our resolve to love one another sacrificially. As Dirk mentioned earlier, to give of ourselves sacrificially, to give our gifts that God has given to us in order to build up the body, to give of our time, to give of the resources that God has given to advance the mission of the church. It should motivate us as well to live at peace with one another so far as it depends upon us. 1 Corinthians 11 reminds us that we are not only saved from our sin, but we are saved into the family of God, into the church. When we take the Lord's Supper, we remember His death, but we also discern the body. And if there's division among us, it's a reminder to be reconciled to one another. The other thing I would say that relates to 1 Corinthians 11 is if we are living in Christian cliques within the church, 
It's a reminder that Christ died for all of us who are in the church, not just other people who are like us. Everybody is your brother and your sister. Now, you may not like all of your brothers or sisters as equally well, but they are family. And we are called to treat them like family. Every time we come to the table, we should be reminded of that. This is not just about you and Jesus. It is about that. But it's about your brothers and sisters that are here with you in this room to take this meal together. At first free, let me just get really practical. We observe the Lord's Supper on the first Sunday of every month. That's what we've done for as long as I've been here. So you know when it's going to happen. Right? It's next Sunday. If you don't have the calendar in your head, I'll just let you know. So before you show up next Sunday, you have a week's notice to discern the body. To think through your relationships with others in the church. If there's division, leave your gift at the altar right now. Go and be reconciled to your brother or to your sister. So far as it depends on you, we are to live at peace with one another. And if you are not living in Christian fellowship with another believer in the church, maybe you should prioritize that in this coming week or whenever that may be as opposed to taking the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper not only speaks of our vertical relationship with God, but of our horizontal relationship with others. It calls us to live in a manner worthy of the Gospel. It doesn't call us. Let me be clear. It doesn't say you have to have your act cleaned up before you can come to the table. What does the table represent? That Christ had to die for our sins. We come to be renewed in uh, His grace. But if our lives are actually a living contradiction of what the Lord's Supper points to, then it's a call to repent. That's what I'm trying to say. God has given the church the means of grace. He's given ways, His ways, that He promises to work to make us more like His Son. He's given the Word. He's given prayer. He's given baptism. And He's given the Lord's Supper. My goal, my hope for this morning is that this teaching on what the Lord's Supper is, that it is a way to remember Christ's death, a way to remember that we have communion with Christ, that we have fellowship in the church, that it is a foretaste of the Lord's return, that as we remember these things, that then we would be strengthened when we come, that we would grow in faith and hope and love. So I hope you'll come next week and in subsequent months with expectation 
that you will see the Lord's Supper is a very, very small meal, but with the potential for a very large impact upon your life. Come to the table ready to grow big and strong month by month, year by year, little by little in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have been gracious to us in sending Your Son to save us from our sins, to justify us through faith. But You have also been gracious to give us means, means for our sanctification. I pray that we would attend to these more thoughtfully, more purposefully, in the weeks and the months ahead, that we would find joy in them and that You would use them to help us make progress. We wait for our perfection, but in the meantime, we simply ask for progress that we may better reflect Your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.